Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of belonging to you. You are a good God, a faithful God, a God who proves your goodness and your faithfulness to us again and again. Most importantly, when you revealed yourself through the God-man Jesus Christ. We're gathered here this morning because you have seen fit to change our hearts, to be able to see him for who he is and respond appropriately to what you have done for us through him so that we can be reconciled to you. Father, we pray for the the Farr family. We pray that the visa will come through for Max. Lord, we pray for housing to be provided for them in this area. Lord, we just thank you for your mercy to do things in your timing and for the many things that uh, you have taught them through this challenging time. Lord, I pray again that you will be glorified in the teaching of your word and in the way that we listen and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus does what he says he will do. He has power and authority to accomplish it. He takes broken sinners and he restores them to God. He takes broken sinners and he restores us to God. Chief among his chosen apostles was a handful of of fishermen whom he told to leave their nets behind in the lake of Gennesaret and to follow him and he would make them fishers of men. No doubt they didn't know at first what that meant. If Jesus can take Peter, the volatile disciple with misplaced passion and a foot-shaped mouth, and make him firm as a rock who clearly and courageously preaches that Jesus is the Christ, then surely he can do the same with the likes of you and me. How can God accomplish such things through Jesus? Let's listen to Peter preaching Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to indwell his people. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In this section of the second chapter of Acts, where Peter has just quoted prophecy from Joel first to explain what people are seeing and hearing, he seems to be saying that in verses 17 and 18, that those things are being fulfilled before their very eyes. We also looked at other examples from Acts last week to see how that continues to be a reflection of the early days of the church. No longer is it only prophets or great leaders, great heroes who are filled with the Spirit for a particular purpose as in the former days, but the age has now come where the Spirit is poured out on all different kinds of people. In fact, We hear in these verses, in verse 21 and verse 38, the Spirit is poured out on whomever calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. Verses 17 and 18, though, seem to be yet future because they relate to what takes place shortly before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. The day of the Lord, when Christ returns, Peter uses as a warning because that means judgment for those who have not obeyed God through faith. But for those who are being saved by grace through faith, that judgment will not fall on them, will not fall on us. Not because of any merit of their own, not because of any merit of our own, but only because of the righteousness of Christ exchanged for our sin. Verse 21, then, is a summary statement about the intervening time period that began with the last days that have now arrived, but is still before the day that the Lord comes. But as we mentioned last week, Peter's sermon pivots now to show that all of this is only made possible because of the Christ, who is Jesus of Nazareth. As we're following Peter's train of thought, verses 21 and 22 forms a a seamless sermon transition in this first Christian sermon. Who is the Lord to call upon for salvation? Again, Peter ends his quote of Joel with, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22 then transitions from Joel to Jesus, with the connection being the Lord upon whom we should call for salvation. For our understanding, again, the transition seems to answer the question, who is the Lord to call upon in order to obtain salvation? The Lord Jesus Christ. Consider also the implications of where Peter is going with this as he will continue his explanation. If the name of the Lord is Jehovah God, the God of Israel and the one true God, if that's the name of the Lord, And if Jesus is to be equated with that same Lord, then Jesus is deity. He is God. 
Here's just a single Old Testament example that reflects this use of the phrase to mean God, the name of the Lord. The first one that pops into my head, you'll think of others, I'm sure. The first one that pops into my head comes from Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. If that Old Testament Jehovah God is the same Lord as the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is God. What Peter really begins to do here from this transition is to prove that Jesus is clearly both the promised Messiah and he is Lord of all. The only name upon whom anyone can call to be saved from the judgment that is to come that he has just given them warning about. The first clear evidence is Jesus' power. Jesus' power was proof that God appointed him as the anointed Messiah. Verse 22, Peter tells his Jewish audience there in Jerusalem, you guys can't deny the unique power that God made manifest in Jesus of Nazareth. Unbelievably miraculous things, mighty works and wonders and signs. When we went through the gospel of Luke, we continued to say there was no doubt that the people must have been saying to themselves, who can do such things? Who says to people, your sins are forgiven? Who raises people from the dead? Lazarus, come out. Nobody had ever done things like this before. Nobody has ever done things like that since. Some of the religious leaders had foolishly tried to argue that they were happening by Satan's power instead of God's. Remember that interchange? What they couldn't argue with was the results. They didn't deny that what Jesus was doing. They just tried to argue that it wasn't from God. You yourselves know, Peter says, that Jesus was doing things no one else could do. And Peter confirms that this was clearly God attesting, God proving, God showing forth that Jesus was from him to be displayed in public for all to see. That's what it means. God did things through him in our midst that can have no other explanation. Jesus is God's Messiah sent to us. So Jesus' power is the first proof that he was appointed by God to be, as Peter will say in his conclusion at verse 36, both Lord and Christ. Next, Peter goes on to reveal that Jesus' death was not an anomaly. His death was not a thwarting of God's purpose, but in fact proves God's plan and also proves their problem in rejecting him. This one, referring to Jesus in the text of verse 23, is the one you crucified and killed. That's a hendiadis. It just means two words joined by and that refer essentially to the same thing being used for emphasis. That you crucified and killed. Do you think there is any doubt that nearly everyone in Jerusalem at this point at Pentecost, some 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, so shortly after the Passover, with all that had taken place just two months earlier, less than two months earlier, 
when the Jewish religious leadership stirred up the crowds to push for Jesus' crucifixion, which then the Romans carried out, even though Pilate knew that they had no legal reason whatsoever to do so. We heard the repeated conclusion in Luke. This man has done nothing wrong, certainly nothing to warrant his execution. Is there any doubt that everyone has heard of this? Peter keeps saying, you yourselves know. There are two really important points that Peter is making, though, about this execution of the Messiah. Jesus' death was according to God's plan, and listening to my voice, Peter says, you yourselves are accountable for it. So that no one might be confused about why God would allow such a thing as the crucifixion of his Messiah, Peter explains that Jesus' death was in fact according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God had sovereignly decreed in eternity past, in his plan for all things, that this is how he would resolve the problem of man's sin. Man's sin, our rebellious idolatry and waywardness, putting ourselves and other things in the place that only God deserves. But it was God's plan that Jesus would live a sinless life. Unlike Adam and Israel and every one of us, in perfect obedience to God's will, and that he would suffer and die as a perfect substitute for the sins of the world, 1 John 2.2. The sins of the world meaning for persons of every people group in the entire world and not for Jews only. That's why Peter can say in verse 39 that the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So back in verse 23, Jesus' death was in fact proof that God was fulfilling his perfect plan. However, Peter says, God's sovereignty doesn't negate your responsibility for rejecting the Messiah. You crucified and killed him. The truth of God's sovereignty and our responsibility is for sure complex for our finite minds to grapple with. But we dare not try to shape God into our limited understanding rather than accepting how he describes himself in his work. The best explanation that we can offer or that I can think to offer is that God's decree can be the ultimate cause for what transpires while God's still using secondary causes. Take prayer as an example. God will do what God knows is best, but he is pleased. God sees fit to use the secondary cause of the prayers of his people. And yet our prayer in no way manipulates the primary cause of God's own perfect will and character. If that still leaves you scratching your head, You're in good company with the people of God. But we're also the people whom God has miraculously made his own. And we take him at his word. We affirm that he knows better than we do. Doesn't that sound so simple? (laughs) It's so true. We take him at his word. He is good. He knows better than we do. Don't try to shape God into your image. Let God shape you into his. He knows better than we do. 
and we affirm that he has communicated reality to us in a way that even if we don't understand it, we can still obey it. God is sovereign over everything, the cosmos and world events and human hearts, and yet humans remain responsible for their evil deeds. Everyone whom God calls to himself will come, yet he does so through a secondary cause, by transforming our hearts so that we will respond appropriately to Jesus. So God proved that Jesus was his anointed one through miraculous works, and and Jesus' death was further proof of God enacting his definite plan. And Peter emphasizes this parenthesis, his death is still your responsibility. And now the biggest chunk of Peter's sermon and the heart of it is that this Jesus you killed didn't stay dead. God raised him up, beginning in verse 24, will lead all the way to verse 32, and of that... We are the witnesses. What you're seeing and hearing, we're witnesses of the risen Christ. So verses 24 to 32 are explanation and implication of of Christ's resurrection. This is the heart of Peter's sermon. In the resurrection, we see more of God fulfilling Old Testament promise about the Messiah And the fulfillment of that prophecy further shows that his death and resurrection was in God's purpose. So God raised him up, verse 24, loosing, releasing Jesus from the agony of death. The sense here is undoing, reversing that which had genuinely taken place, that Jesus died and he was buried. But God released him from the agony of death. He undid it. And then comes an interesting statement. Because it wasn't possible for death to maintain a hold on him. It wasn't possible. Not just what seems impossible, but then is accomplished. That would be from the the other side of, of him rising from the dead, which seems impossible. But nothing will be impossible with God. No, this mission impossible is is actually impossible. You know, mission impossible is more like the first one. Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt, it seems impossible, but somehow he always pulls it off. The other side of what Peter is actually saying, something that is genuinely impossible, this mission is impossible because death could not hold the divine Son of God in its grasp. Could not. Cannot. It's not possible. Why not? It's impossible because of who he is. Human death can't hold down the Lord of the universe. And Peter explains that it's impossible because of the divine plan to fulfill his promise and to accomplish his purpose in Christ Jesus. So that's where quoting this prophecy comes in, beginning in verse 25. It's from a psalm of David, which we've numbered in our Bibles as Psalm 16. And Dustin read for us this morning. The prophecy in it isn't about David, it is about the Christ, Peter explains. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise and the purpose of that prophecy. Peter sets up the quote by stating that David, in fact, says this about him, about Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah whom you killed. 
Although the kicker in the quote comes at verse 27 about the resurrection, which Peter will develop further, he begins just a little bit earlier in David's poem to set up that it's in fact, quote, the Lord whom David has set before him, whom David saw, who speaks the words of verse 27 prophetically through David about his future resurrection. Following the quote, Peter develops the logic, David died. His body stayed dead. Nobody says otherwise, because the future resurrection, the final resurrection of all hasn't taken place. So he says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Probably somewhere nearby where Peter was speaking. So this was indeed a prophecy that fulfilled God's promise to David, that God would set one of his descendants on his throne. Again, Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, Jesus is that Messiah. And as we already pointed out, the particular part in verse 27 was not about David at all, but the Christ who is Jesus. He foresaw David and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Hades is the New Testament equivalent of the grave in the Old Testament or Sheol. It can be used to identify hell like it is when it's used in Matthew 11.23 when contrasting heaven. But here it's used in the more common meaning of the general place of the dead. The resurrection means that Jesus didn't stay in the place of the dead, and therefore even his physical flesh didn't remain there long enough to decay. Ooh, gross. Remember? Joseph and Nicodemus anointed the body of Jesus when they buried him. And the women were going to go back and do more of the same to honor him because his body was going to start to stink. Not this body. Jesus rose from the grave before his body saw decay. Jesus is that holy one. Death couldn't hold him. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. He is the Messiah. And it was God's purpose, Peter shows, for this Messiah to die and rise again. Verse 32 reiterates the point, this Jesus God raised up. And then shifts the focus to the disciples being eyewitnesses to testify to the fact that Jesus appeared to them after he rose from the grave. And that brings Peter back to the original question that people had been asking about what was going on with all these Galileans, ordinary people, fishermen, tax collectors, and the like from the region around Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee. How were these people speaking the native languages of us 
who either live in Jerusalem now or are visiting from all these places in the known world, our native tongue of the places that we were born, they are speaking to us in our language. How did that happen? So Peter comes back to that again, remember? This was our focus last week. He comes back to that again and he says, the reason you are seeing and hearing this is because we are witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And that's the promised spirit pouring out proof of the risen Lord, verses 32 and 33. We are witnesses, Peter says. We saw the risen Jesus. And to help drive home the proof that we witnessed the resurrected Christ, he has poured out by the power of the Holy Spirit all that you're seeing and hearing. And the coming of the Spirit, we said last week in this way, is eschatological fulfillment of that promise in Joel that Peter started with. We're living in the last days. You need to be ready before the day of the Lord comes. What's the point? The pouring out of the Spirit is not only the answer to your question about how this is happening, it is further proof that Jesus is risen. We are eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. Continuing these proofs, we stay in verse 33 to see the final two. I've put them together. Peter says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God to begin the exaltation and the ascension of Jesus are proof of his messianic fulfillment, further proof of that fulfillment, and of his rightful position as Lord. Jesus fulfilled everything that God purposed for him to do in his first coming. So he's now seated having completed that task. And who else can be seated at the right hand of majesty on high other than one who is in his rightful position? Just so, Peter quotes David again in verses 34 and 35 to show once more that not even David could claim such a high place. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Instead, David spoke prophetically in this quoting of Psalm 110 verse 1, which is a favorite of the New Testament writers to quote, that the Lord Jesus is the one whom they literally witnessed ascending into heaven and who sits at the right hand of majesty as the exalted Lord over all God's enemies. Peter pulls all these proofs together to conclude in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here's how he wraps up his sermon. All of this is conclusive evidence that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the divine Lord. And he comes back again to you, whom you crucified. You saw proof of his unique power, but you killed him anyways. God has shown him to be the fulfillment of his promise. God has shown him to be the fulfillment of his plan or his purpose through his death and his resurrection. We're witnesses to that resurrection, and you're seeing and hearing proof of it right now 
through the power of the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. God has exalted Jesus, and he has ascended to his rightful position, this one whom you rejected and put to death. The lingering question in the crowd is, what are you going to do about it now? The audience is obviously left wondering, what does this mean for us? We killed the Messiah, who is the Lord. He rose again. He's coming back to judge us. What do we do now? You too should be asking, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for me? You have two options. Wait to be judged by this Lord. That's option one. Wait to come under judgment. Justly condemned for your sin. Or, Peter's trying to tell them, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. God might be inviting you this morning to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's true that your story is just like mine. You were born rebellious, and you've been rebelling ever since. You might even honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from Him. You can't solve the problem. An infinitely holy God is infinitely far away from you. God resolves the problem Himself by giving us the God-man Jesus Christ to bridge the gap for us. God calls you to respond in repentance and faith, to come to him and say, I finally see. I can't save me. I don't love you. I don't honor you. I'm destined for destruction and I know it. Will you save me through Jesus? Will you restore me to yourself? You can say that in your own words, not in mine. God knows your heart. Because <laughs> if you respond that way, God's the one changing your heart. <laughs> like we said last week, don't delay. You don't know when the day of the Lord is coming. Believers, I wish that I could be a fly on the wall in each small group and family discussion about this text. I'd love to hear you talking about, even though this text, Peter preaching to people who have not yet repented and been restored to God through Jesus. That's what this text is about. I'd love to hear you talking about how this challenges you and encourages you. I know you're going to think of more things 
But here's just one application that I thought of for us to reflect on about this passage. If God can give Peter, Peter, (laughs) when I was talking about Peter, it's hard for me to talk about Peter and God's transformation of Peter without making me want to cry. When I was a kiddo, I tell my kids, when I was a kid, I was super frustrated. I was just a junior hire, but some of you are junior hires. I was super frustrated with how foolish my mouth was and how much it got me in trouble. And my oldest brother said to me, JJ, are you humble enough to let God have that and use your big mouth to be a tool for him? If God can give Peter boldness and clarity, surely he'll do the same for you and me as we seek to obey him in sharing Jesus with others. Remember who the church is? Set apart and sent. Part of that is boldness and clarity to tell people about Jesus. Remember when you share your testimony, of course, in your story, there's a before and an after Christ, right? There's a before and an after Christ. But who's it really about? Who's the middle? Jesus. Your transformation is about Jesus. I just encourage you again, when you talk about your testimony, talk primarily about Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I just want to thank you again this morning for a church family that you have given the the clarity and the privilege of submitting to your word in the sense that we know that we don't have anything to say unless we study to understand the meaning of of your word, and that's the message that we preach. People don't need TED Talks. We just need to hear from you. God, we thank you that because your word is from your Holy Spirit, and because it is your Holy Spirit who changes us, that your word is powerful and effective to change our hearts. Father, we pray for repentance and submission. We pray for you to continue growing us. We know that it's not what we deserve, but in your mercy and graciousness, you are making a people for your own possession will proclaim the excellencies of your glorious grace. Do this in us for your own glory. Amen.